All right. So Philippians, I've been making sure I'm going to say that right the whole time, because I always say Philippines, and I mess it up. I don't know if I spelled it right on the screen or not, but uh, I'm just counting on none of you will know if I spelled it wrong. So we're in the book of uh, Philippians, and if I mess it up, just bear with me, which is a, a letter written to a church in Philippi by a guy named Paul. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really good to be with, here with you all tonight. Um, always nice to step from that stage to this one and be able to share the word a little bit. Um, and as I was preparing, I was learning a lot about this book that we've been working through and kind of the, the context of it. Um, Jay, would you be able to find me the stool real quick? I figure if I'm going to keep walking around, I'd better sit down or else we'll get a bit too into it. Um, I get like fidgety, you know? But this book, Philippians, it's a letter written by Paul, and there's a lot of context to it that I'll admit I missed when I first started writing this sermon. So we've had to rework some things because context matters a lot. And it's one of the advantages of being able to work through a book over eight weeks like this. It's only four chapters, taking eight weeks to go through it. And what's good about it is we actually get to kind of sit in the context and figure out what's the bigger picture going on, and then what are like the little pieces that we can take out of it from there. And so as we jump in today, I think there's some really good stuff. We get a few uh, verses right in the middle of what Paul is saying that are absolute gold. But in order to fully understand those verses, I think it's helpful we take a bit of a step back and give ourselves a bit more context for this specific part of the passage. Are you ready if we go back and give ourselves some context? Perfect. So I actually want to jump back real quick to uh, the first chapter. This is stuff we've already covered, but it'll just help us get a bit of a, some stuff right in our mind. Paul's writing to the church, and in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, when Christ comes back, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. This gives us a bit of context for what Paul's goal is, is that the church in Philippi, and, and maybe we can apply this to us too, so that our love may abound more and more, and that we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness, it just means right standing with God. The fruit of righteousness means like the natural outflow of walking in the way that God intended the natural outflow of being in right relationship with God, which is the peace that God promises, the joy that God promises, the life and fulfillment and contentment that God promises is the fruit. It's the result of right relationship with God. It's the result of righteousness. It's the fruit of righteousness. So Paul's goal is that the church in Philippi would experience this fruit, experience all these good things, um, and that's kind of the, the context, but he's, he's saying that I want your love to abound more and more. And, and uh, some of the context for the church in Philippi is that they're actually a relatively healthy church. They've got a lot of things going for them. If you've ever read like First and Second Corinthians, you see a lot of the stuff that Paul's telling them not to do. And you're like, man, like, did they, they actually do that? It's like, nah, I think they actually did. And it's some crazy stuff that Paul's having to write and correct and say, don't do that. The book of uh, Philippians, I almost did it again. 
the book of Philippians doesn't have those kind of harsh corrections in it so much. The church in Philippi, they're doing pretty good. But as they were a healthy, growing church, there started to be seeping in a little bit of disunity into the church. They started having some relationship issues in the church. They started not being able to interact with each other in a way that was beneficial, and it was starting to bring some division to the church. And I even think it's interesting that you have this healthy church that's doing great things for the kingdom of God, and unity is the big issue. And I think the reason for this is because unity, disunity, is the wedge that the enemy uses to destroy healthy things of God. Which I think is actually probably a good warning for us as a church today because our church is growing. We're seeing new people come out. We're seeing people get saved and their lives transformed. But there's always a risk that the enemy can push in disunity to undo all of that. So it's why Paul in so many of his letters is talking about unity because it is the backbone of a healthy church. So Paul is trying to help the, the Philippians be healthy and be unified together And he does this through a set of arguments and examples and exhortations and encouragements through this letter. And it's important to kind of see this as a theme throughout because Paul's going to, first he talks about himself to kind of try and give some context for what walking out life with God and with others is supposed to look like. Paul talks about, like we, just a few weeks ago, he was imprisoned. And he starts talking about, like, whether I live or whether I die. And even in in jail, he's saying, but it's worked out for good because even some of the guards have come to know Jesus. So Paul has this framework for his own life where he sees his life not as the thing that's important. He sees what God is doing through his life as the thing that is most important. And he sets himself up as this example of, I'm not worried about my own life. Jesus has that covered. I'm not worried about my own needs. God has that covered. I'm not worried about what I'll do tomorrow, what, what com- what's coming next, whether or not I get out of prison, whether I live or die. It doesn't matter because God's got me covered. And so when God is fulfilling every need you ever have, the only thing left is to serve. We only serve others effectively when we fully realize that God's got it all covered. So Paul gives himself as this example. And then he gets a, gives a little bit of a, another uh, Um, kind of encouragement. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We talked about this last week. It's Paul continuing to try and give us a framework for how we live as the church in a way that creates unity. So he's saying, like, again, like, my example, like, Paul's saying, like, Jesus has everything covered. I don't got to worry about that. So you also stop worrying about your own stuff and worry about the people around you. And then he goes on to give another example in Christ, just one little line of it. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Earlier, I guess it says, and he didn't, he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And you get this example of Christ who has, the most reason of anybody to be elevated, to have status, to have privilege, to have things handed to him, to have the great life. But even he, with all those things available, humbled himself, became a servant, surrendered his own life, even to the point of death on the cross, because he knew that, no, God the Father has got it all covered. 
And there's these examples, first of Paul and then of, of Jesus. And as we go on through Philippians, we'll even see that Timothy was also an example of, that was given of these people who have this confidence in knowing that God's got it all covered. So therefore, I will lay down my life for the sake of others. And so that is a bit of the framework that we have as we get to the passage that we're going to talk about today. Because guess what our passage starts with? It starts with a therefore, which you're probably sick of us talking about, because what do you do when there's a therefore? You ask what it's there for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So therefore, if we go to verse 12 of chapter 2, this is our text for today. Paul writing, he says, Therefore, so in light of all that God has done, in light of this example of Christ's obedience, of becoming like a servant, therefore, my beloved, I think even my, him saying my beloved is key because he's, he's not trying to come at this as like an angry pastor. He's coming at it like, no, this, I'm, I'm somebody that loves you, that's got your best interests at heart, that I'm writing to you. So he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And there's so much good stuff in here. Even, even the fact that he starts off with, not just in my presence, but also in my absence. How many of you know it's a lot easier to follow God when you're in church with all the Christians around than it is when you go into work? Or if you're, maybe your language changes when the kids are around. Or the way that we interact is different when certain people are around. It's a lot easier to walk out life with Jesus sometimes when there's other people that follow Jesus around you. And Paul's saying, don't just, don't just live this out when I'm there. He's like, don't just do it when there's accountability. Don't just do it when you get some status from doing the right things. He's saying, even when I'm gone, do this. Obey. He says, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is not exactly fear and trembling, but it's meant to give us a sense of like importance, significance, something not to be trifled with. Um, this idea is, is, not, is not loose. It's like, a, it's like very firm. It's important. Don't want to miss it. We need to take it seriously. So work out your own salvation. And I want to pause here for a moment because salvation's a really interesting idea. We talk about it quite often, this idea of being saved. But I want to maybe broaden a little bit our perspective of what salvation is. And there's some big theological ideas around this that we won't dive into too much. But we often understand salvation as a moment. Um, the Bible, or the theological scholars would call, call this moment justification. That's the fancy word. But it's basically this moment where we accept Christ's invitation to follow him with our lives. To repent and turn from our sin and to walk with Jesus. It's a moment of salvation. It's a moment where we are saved, we are reconciled to God, and that happens in a moment as we commit to follow Jesus. We do not choose to be saved, we choose to follow Jesus. Being saved is simply the result of that. But salvation is not limited simply to a moment, but salvation is actually threefold. And sometimes we talk about this in the sense of like you are saved. You're being saved, and you will be saved. The theological terms are you are justified, you are sanctified, and then you are glorified. 
but I've got my own terms to try and make it a little bit more easy, a bit easier to remember, is that there is a moment, there is a journey, and there is a destination. And to unpack this a little bit, like the moment that is available to us all, if you are here and you have not decided to follow Jesus, that is his invitation to you today. That all that stuff we said, that, that, that um, the fruit of righteousness, the joy, peace, contentment in life, fulfillment in the areas where we've tried to find fulfillment over and over and over again and just keep falling short, that feeling we get when we get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and we still feel empty, those are the things where God wants to breathe life and life abundantly into your life. We experience that as we choose to follow Jesus and surrender to his will for our lives, to turn from sin towards Jesus. And we can do that in a moment. Nobody is disqualified from that. Nobody is too far from that. Any of us today can make that step, say, Jesus, I want to follow you. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that that moment starts, but then you're not perfect right away, right? There, there is a moment where maybe God even does radically change a few things in your life, but then you realize maybe a few months in that's like, man, some of these habits are still sticking around. Some of these impulses I have, they're still there. Some of these ways of thinking aren't, aren't they, those don't feel like God's thoughts in my life. And I know I have the Holy Spirit living within me, but man, like, if this is it, I don't know, like, I don't think this is all it's chalked up to be. And this is where we get the journey of sanctification, this journey of salvation. We have a moment where we are saved but then we live a life of progressively, in a sense, being more saved, where God does a progressive work to take us from a kind of our broken, sinful self to heal and restore us back towards the person that he created us to be. And that is also a part of salvation. If we view salvation simply as a moment and don't recognize that it is a journey, we will start get, we'll get to the foot of a mountain and start climbing and be discouraged because we don't have any framework for why life may be that way. Because there are, on a journey, there are highs and there are lows. There are mountains and there are valleys. There's times when we are going up and there's times that we are going down. And if we do not have a context for that, we will often find ourselves discouraged, burnt out, and wondering, God, is this actually the plan that you have for me? So I think it's actually helpful for us to view this as a journey. And that journey has a destination. Either when we die and see Jesus face to face or if he returns before then, we have reached our destination. The time where Jesus will ultimately completely solve all of the problems. Restore us completely back to the sinless version of ourselves. To where we will 100% experience the joy and peace and love that God had always intended for us to experience. So it's these three stages of salvation. A moment, a journey, and a destination. And the reason I bring all this up is when Paul is saying work out your own salvation. He's not speaking to the people that aren't saved yet. He's speaking to the Christians. So it's not saying like, hey, this idea of salvation, work towards it. No, no, no. He's saying you have already experienced salvation. Now you've got to let that work out through every area of your life. And that there is actually an active participation with God that we do along that journey. 
we are actually responsible for taking steps along that journey. Because, and sometimes I think that, sometimes I wonder if God is less concerned with where we are along that journey as he is with whether or not we're taking steps along it. And I think sometimes we can, we can view ourselves like further along or not, and, and maybe we get, we get kind of content with where we are. And sometimes I wonder, does God, would God rather us be further along and content with where we're at and not moving forward? Or would he rather us be not very far along, but be actively pursuing him, walking out, working out our salvation? And this process is not always easy. And there might be some of us in the room today where we actually, we recognize that, no, this is a journey and I've been, I've been walking it. But like, man, I keep trying and trying and trying and trying and I don't feel like I'm getting very far. And it's like, I feel like I'm doing all the right things and, and trying to move myself forward and I'm just not really getting there. And that is where we get in trouble if we do verse 12 without verse 13. So if we start with verse 12 again, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I think this is one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. And it's so easy to miss. Even the first few times I read it, I think I, I missed it. And to be honest, the time that this verse stood out to me most was last night when I realized I had to scrap part of the sermon because I didn't think it was actually fully accurate. And I just got the sense of like, nope, that's not, that's not the piece to say today. And so it's like, all right, God, well, what do you want me to say instead? And it's this reminder, but it is God who works in you. And I think there's all the time that we're up against stuff and it's like, man, I do not have it in me to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I feel like I'm climbing up a mountain and the top, I can't even see it through the clouds and I don't know if I can go another step. Well, it is God who works in you, both for your will and your desire and also for your work, your actions. God is at work within you to to, to help guide you along this journey of salvation, this journey of working out what it means to be in relationship with God. And I think this applies across the board for all kinds of different stuff. Though Paul specifically here is speaking about this specifically to the context of relationships and unity in the church. Paul is basically saying, if we go right to the, the kind of the narrow view of what he's really trying to get at, is Paul is saying, since you've been saved, since you already have all that you need, let that idea and that framework that you have everything that you need, that you don't have to be worried about yourself, that you are able to think more of the interests of others than of your own, let that work itself out in your life. And can you imagine a church filled with people that aren't concerned about their own life, their own advancement, their own needs, and are purely focused on the needs of each other. Can you imagine the kind of community that that creates? 
And it's ultimately rooted in this idea that God is good and God wants to have us experience the fruit of righteousness. He wants us to have everything that we need. He wants us to experience his goodness. So that's Paul, what Paul is really, really getting at. And he's saying that for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think this piece is cool too because as God is our father, you can imagine if you were a parent, one of the things that probably brings you the most joy is when you can see two children, one sacrificing something that they have to give to another. I used to work at a summer camp, and I had, like, a little family of 12-year-old, 14-year-old, however old they were, boys in the cabin that I would kind of be overseeing for the week. And it was, there was nothing more fulfilling that after, like, six days of summer camp, some of the roughest, meanest kids at the end are going out of their way to do something for one of the others. And there is a joy that comes from seeing people or children or whoever sacrifice something of their own to give to somebody else. And I think it's the same thing for God. When see, he sees his children in his church laying down their own needs, laying down their own desires for those of each other, it brings him great, great pleasure. But the other piece that stood out to me as I was thinking about this is I think it's interesting that in the same sentence that God is talking about the work that he does in our life, he's also talking about his great pleasure. And I think sometimes as we're on this journey of sanctification, we sometimes envision God as being, come on, you did it again? Come on, like, we've been through this before. And sometimes I think we, we feel like we've disappointed God because we haven't done enough, or we've disappointed God because we did all the wrong things, or, or we disappointed God, or we weren't enough, or he's frustrated with us. And, it's, and God's saying, like, no, 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 no. I want to be involved in this process in your life. It brings me great pleasure to see you work out your salvation. It brings me great pleasure to help you along this journey. So we go on as Paul's writing about how we are unified as a church, how we are to go about relationships, how we are to kind of correct our perspective a little bit. Um, he goes on to say in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do any of you ever grumble or dispute? Any, any, any complainers in the house? We laugh, but it is interesting that the one piece that Paul says after he says work out your salvation is stop complaining. He doesn't say anything else. And the reason this is here is because complaining, even though we probably wouldn't realize it, is actually rooted deeply in some of our beliefs about God. One guy put it this way, that every complaint is an assault on the goodness of God. And the reason it is that way is because if God actually provides everything that we need, if God actually is good, if God is actually there walking with us, then whatever do we have to complain about? Whatever do we have to dispute about? Complaining is the, like the, the seed from which disunity grows. And ultimately, complaining is rooted in the belief that God doesn't actually provide everything that I need. 
and that God maybe actually isn't as good as I thought he was. And I know we don't always think about it that way, but I think Paul is writing this because he views complaining and grumbling as far more significant of an issue than we do. And he's writing specifically to a healthy, growing church, and he's saying, you're, you're doing great, but be really careful about grumbling and complaining. And I think there actually is something there for us today, that as we are a, a growing church that is trying to become healthy, we've got to be very, very cautious about the way that we use our words and the perspective that we have with these things. To finish it off, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And to be honest, that is what we are created to be. That is why we are here as a church is to shine as lights in the world. And I just think it's fascinating that the process that Paul gives us is to journey along the sanctifying journey with God doing the work. We do work, God does work, we both work towards it. And he says, do it all without complaining because that is the way that you'll stand and be blameless and be a light to the world. It's significant. And to be honest, there's not even, like, we don't even have to go much further than that. Because I think that gives us all something to work on this week. Is say, God, like I'm on this journey with you and I know that you're, you're walking with me. Help me to walk this journey in the way that you would have me walk it. Without grumbling or disputing. So that I might shine as a light in the world. And so there's some really good content there. And lastly, I want to end off just by giving us a few kind of really practical steps for how do we work out our salvation. Because we have to be 100% engaged with that. And God is also 100% engaged with that. But there is a part that we play. The Holy Spirit wants to do a transformative work in our life. But the Holy Spirit does not have a master key to every door in our, of our heart. The Holy Spirit's not there like kicking down doors and entering into all kinds of places in our life where we haven't invited him. Our role in this journey, as God does the work, is to invite his transformative spirit into our life. And that means intentionally going and unlocking those doors of our life that maybe we've kept hidden, we've kept closed, the things that we haven't invited God into, our active pursuing God in this is by opening up those doors and saying, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do, would you do it? I'm going to invite the band to come up, but I want to give you four kind of ways that we go about surrendering our life to the Holy Spirit and his work. The first is positioning. Actually, I'll read them all off and then we'll go back through. We actively surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit through positioning, requesting, expecting, and obeying. Positioning. Placing ourselves in environments where God is moving. You are doing that tonight and today. You're saying, you're coming into church. This, God is here. The Holy Spirit is moving. And that is part of positioning yourself to let the Holy Spirit transform your life. But this is also like, Moments where you set aside time with the word, with the Bible, with prayer, any of those things to set aside time for God to move. 
But positioning is also about like a mindset. Am I positioning myself, am I positioning my mind to be open to what God wants to do? And that leads us into requesting. So I position myself to receive, and then am I requesting God to move? Am I saying, God, there's some areas of my life that I, I have tried to fix, I have tried to move forward in, and I'm just not able to. We can request and ask God to come into those parts of our life. That one of the promises of God is that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. God does all the healing work. God's transformative power is, is the thing that, that, that does all that work in us. Our part is to draw near. So we position ourselves in places where God is moving. We, we ask that God would move. And I think we have to expect that he will. Because some of us, I think, we have all these ideas of, of God and we're like, man, I want that. And I've prayed for that, but I just, I don't know if I actually believe that he's gonna show up. We're seeing these little pockets of, of outpouring of God happen all throughout the states right now, if you're paying attention to it. And sometimes I wonder if those things happen when we start to believe that God actually wants to show up. We often work around this idea that God goes where he's wanted. And I think if we're being frank, sometimes we're just a little bit apathetic. We're not always expecting God to show up. We're not always really desiring for it. And I think when we start to believe that God actually wants to show up and God actually wants to transform us and we start expecting that and desiring that and leaning into that, those are the moments where God shows up. You can even sense the difference in a church service like this when everybody's leaning in versus when they're not. There is a sense tangibly of the Holy Spirit when we are leaning in that he meets us there every single time. I used to attend church in New Brunswick and there was a lot of times I'd be in worship and I wasn't feeling a thing. So I'd just sit there, arms crossed, sitting down, kind of waiting for God to show up. And one day I kind of felt God prompt me and say like, why are you, why are you waiting? I've said I'll be there if you show up. And I just got the sense that like I'm supposed to praise and worship before I feel anything expecting that God is going to show up in my life. And then followed a year of God showing up every single time I worship. But there is an expectation that some of us have had that expectation kind of beat out of us. And maybe God wants to reignite your desire for him, but more so your belief that he actually wants to show up in your life. That there's things in your life that he actually wants to change. And the last piece is that we obey. We position ourselves, we request for him to move, we expect that we will, and when he shows up and he asks us to do something, we say, yes, God, whatever it is. And that is how we work out our salvation. That is how we journey along with God, is by actively surrendering to his Holy Spirit. Father God, thank you that you are here. God, I pray that right now there just be an increase in faith and belief that you actually want to show up in our midst that you'd increase our confidence in knowing that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. God, as we walk this journey with you, would you help us to recognize that you are right there with us. You're the one pulling the weight. That when we get discouraged, we can look beside us and you're right there. 
that when it feels like we're on a mountain, we could recognize that this is just a journey that we walk and there are greater things ahead and you are walking with us, you're doing the work, you're moving. So Father, for those of us who maybe have been discouraged, for those of us who maybe have things in our life that, that we just feel like we can't overcome, for those of us who just need a touch from you, God, would you show up? Would your Holy Spirit come in Jesus' name?